Hi, this is Sonia Walger and welcome to Bookish, a podcast where I talk to interesting people about the five books that have shaped them most. My guest this episode is cosmologist and physics professor Sean Carroll. Sean specializes in dark energy and general relativity. He's a research professor in the Department of Physics at Caltech, author of three books entitled From Eternity to Here, The Particle at the End of the Universe, and The Big Picture on the Origins of Life, Meaning, and the Universe Itself. So, you know, the easy stuff. Our mutual friend David Goya suggested him as a possible guest, and once I got over my heart-stopping intimidation, I felt thoroughly at home with Sean as I sat in his Caltech office and asked him silly questions about books. Thank you so, so much for being my guest this morning. Thank Um, you for having me. It is so lovely, and I'm sitting here in your office at Caltech University, and... um, was just saying as I walked in how lovely it is to be back on a campus and how uh, unusual all my other guests have either gone to their houses or they've come to my hotel room or they've, right. we've met somewhere quiet. But um, it's a treat. It's a really lovely <laughs> thing. It takes me back to Oxford. It takes me back to university, walking past rooms with sort of people with furrowed brows and scratchings on, on whiteboards. <laughs> That's what we do, lovely. yeah. You know, I had a friend who was a TV writer uh, come visit us when I was visiting Santa Barbara at their Institute for Theoretical Physics. And they have, you know, like, like we have here at Caltech, these wall-to-wall blackboards. And there were these physicists standing at the blackboards in the public space, furrowed brows, writing with chalk. And he's like, that's really what it it's is. Real. It's really, it's real. like we had that on TV, but it's we didn't know. It's not real. just yeah. a beautiful mind. That's it actually right. is yeah. like how it all works. Um, so just a little bit about I will do a proper intro when I when we put the when we produce the podcast properly so people will know who you are but um but just to sort of start us off you are a physicist who teaches here right that's right actually I'm a physicist who mostly does research here at Caltech Mm -hmm. um in fact my title is research professor so my job is to do physics research uh I will occasionally teach if they catch me in a weak moment and ask me to do something that's especially interesting so that is going on right now Uh right so who who are you teaching right now I am teaching uh, a group of students who are mostly juniors, so that's mm-hmm. third-year undergraduate students and physics majors. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also a couple of younger ones and a few older ones. Uh, there are graduate students from applied physics, chemistry, and so forth, and I'm teaching them quantum mechanics, some of the wow. deep ideas of quantum mechanics, what a measurement is, what probability is, things like that. Mm. Wow. These are all words that I, uh, I think I understand in that I have a dictionary in my brain somewhere <laughs> but the actual you know meaning of what you the deeper meaning of what you're talking about is beyond me but also um fascinating i mean i when i you know when you agreed to be on the podcast i felt both humbled panicked and delighted all at the same time <laughs> because because no because truthfully it's a world about which i know nothing i the world i know is books and right. the spoken word and um communication communication meaning in in the sort of larger artistic sense of it but i was reading about you and i was looking at your website um preposterousuniverse.com mm-hmm. and um and i was really I, I was just really struck by how um how important communication is to you in that in the, the way that you communicate it seemed to me in my absolute layman um idiot term, terms but that you seem to have gone to great pains to make these very complex ideas right. human, to, to bring them to a level that, if not, I don't pretend to attend one of your classes and understand, but the, but the, whole, the whole design of what you seem to be writing about is to, is to make this accessible for us. Is that Yeah, that's that absolutely right? part of it. I think that there's two things going on. One is that the well science in general Mm. but also the specific kind of science that i do Mm. um why are we doing it right i'm a theoretical physicist i study the universe as a whole Mm. the fundamental laws of physics what happened at the big bang what the universe is made of things like this nothing that i ever do will make the world a tangible better place in terms of a technological advance curing a disease or anything like that the only reason we do it 
is because we're curious.、Mm. We want to find out the answer.、Mm. So part of me says, you know, what would be the point of doing what I do and then not telling anybody what we've learned? Sure. That's really、sure. the only reason why, as a society, we support、mm. what I do for a living.、Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. But the other thing, of course, is that it's fun. I,、mm. I do like it. I've always、uh, loved science and physics in particular, but I also love other things. And、um, public presentation and communication and education and outreach. Connecting science and physics to the humanities, to、mm-hmm. literature and art and, and music and so forth, philosophy,、mm-hmm. history. These are all things that I love intrinsically.、Yeah. So I will take advantage of my little platform、yeah. as a theoretical physicist to connect with these other areas. Yeah, I think that was what I was. I think that was what I was struck by was the sort of applicability of what you've what you were what you seem to be uncovering.、Um, and you know, I should say here that the reason I'm even in this office is because we have a mutual friend, David Goya, who has already been interviewed for this podcast, and and.、Um, And Goya's love of of the whole genre of science fiction has led him to an, make an you know entire career out of it,、right. and his fascination with the space time continuum, for lack of a better、mm-hmm. <laughs> expression,、yeah. um, and and the sort of、um, pliancy of time makes for great great television and film potentially, and I think he's exploited that to the full, which is how he met you, right? right. You've you've consulted、right. with on him his films, on,、yeah. on his films, yeah,、um, and so that that to me was. That to me was just fascinating. It, 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 I don't know where it connects to, our, you know, the books that we're going to talk about and things. But I was struck by the fact that your、um, your discipline is not so removed from what、right. we're. Doing here. I mean, it is in some sense, or let's say it usually is.、Okay. This was, in fact,、uh, so here's the segue. This was the reason why I wrote my last book,、uh-huh. uh, which is called The Big Picture, and the subtitle is On the Origins of Life, Meaning, and the Universe Itself. Right. So the whole idea of that book is to connect these big picture physics ideas, the underlying laws of nature. To our everyday lives, to、uh, the fact that we are living and thinking, breathing, conscious creatures, and also the fact that we have questions about what it means to live an interesting, good, moral, productive life,、mm-hmm. and these are not the kinds of questions that a typical physicist wants to talk about、sure. when they're talking to the general public or to their colleagues.、Uh, but you know, going out and giving a lot of talks and talking to people, you realize these are questions that people care about,、yeah. and at some point, rather than saying no, don't care about those. You say, well, all right, let's try to find an answer and let's talk about that.、And、we don't have any final, definitive answers here, but it's certainly something we can discuss. Sure. What What sparked this? What got you? Where Where Why physics? <laughs> well, physics. I fell in love with very early, ten years old, something like that.、Um, going to local public library, and it was. It was mostly reading physics books. <laughs> That's what got me interested. You know, it wasn't really、um, a science fiction TV show or a great teacher or anything like that. I've had all those, and I love、mm-hmm. all those. But I just read books about quarks and leptons and the Big Bang and black holes. Age ten. Yeah, and I said, "This is what I want to do." I, wanna, I don't what, know what that means. What took what you to、do. that、um, section of the library? Do you I、know? don't know. Really? No idea, really. Yeah, I come from a long line of、uh, steel workers and salesmen in my family. You know,、really? like I did not come from an academic family in any sense.、Um, I just found this stuff and fell in love with it. I'm not exactly sure why. Did they? Were they supportive? Was your mum and dad taken aback? Were they able to relate? Were they? Yeah, you know, it, what often happens is that there's sort of there's a generation where、uh, the parents are striving and and trying to become middle. Class,、mm-hmm. and then、uh, there's another generation that is middle class and is professional and gets good white collar jobs, and then their children become sort of like hippies or academics、mm-hmm. or something like that. So I skipped the generation.、Okay. So like,、uh, my parents were a little befuddled in the sense like, why you're smart enough to make a lot of money? Why aren't you right, doing that? Right, right. And but they were supportive in the sense that you know, all right, if that's what you want to do, you know, by all means, and 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 certainly、uh, proud of what I am doing right now. I'm sure they must be. How could they not be? Were they? Readers,、um, not especially,、no. not very, very much.、Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, uh, my parents got divorced when I was very young, so it's basically my mom who raised me, and、mm-hmm. she was working full time.、Mm-hmm. And、uh, was it just you, or did you have something?、Uh, me and my younger brother.、Mm-hmm. And、um, I, yeah, I don't know. My 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 wife also is the same way. Jennifer Willett. She's a writer.、Mm-hmm. She writes about science, and she was adopted, so it's a little bit different. But also, like no one in her family was really big readers or writers.、Um, Just happened. There you are. So extraordinary. Yeah. And physics was where the love of reading. Did you already have a love of books that led you into that library? I think that's what it was.、Place? I think that I was a reader first. Right. And I started reading physics books, and then I became love and 
with physics. You know, yeah. it, I could easily imagine that had I read some other books when I was 10 years old, I might be doing something else right now. Um, Do you? Is that because you're a physicist and you believe in a parallel universe? Or is that because you... This <laughs> is really hypothetical. I'm not saying there is another me out there. Sure. But that's also possible. You know, yeah, who knows? Just t- tiny deviations in the state of the universe when I was a kid could have led to different branches of the wave function, as we right. say. Right. But isn't that interesting? Because I do wonder, had, it, had you had you wandered down a different avenue yeah. of books, would that, would that have done anything? Absolutely. I sometimes yeah. laugh with my husband and I'm like, you know what? I've never tried the parallel bars. What if... I mean, what if right. I'm just supposed to be the <laughs> <laughs> Never tried. He's now heard me say the banjo? So don't know, I right? think he's going to give me parallel bars for my birthday because I think he's literally like, seriously, do we need to scratch this itch? Do we need to it's check out where like you underneath, are? Underneath, yeah. Um, the first book that you listed, and correct me if I'm not coming at them in the right chronology, but the first book that you listed was 123 Infinity by George Garrow. Gamov. Gamov, sorry. I misread my own handwriting. Gamov. Um which was published in 1947. Tell, tell me, when were, you, when were you, how old were you reading that? Well, this was one of the first books uh-huh. that I fell in love with. Um, the, what, what happened, the books that I was reading, a lot of them were actually about astronomy. Mm. So like what's out there in space, planets, moons, stars, oh, etc. Right. Actually, that's not what I love really. Mm-hmm. Um, nevertheless, various historical circumstances uh, conspired that both as an undergraduate student and as a graduate student, I was in astronomy departments, uh, even though what I really loved was physics. Um, why were they? What were they? Why did uh, that You know, I got into, um, we didn't have any money, so I couldn't go to like Harvard or Princeton because they were too expensive. Mm-hmm. So I went to Villanova because they offered me a full tuition scholarship at wow. Villanova University. And uh, their physics department was not that great, but their astronomy department was very good. Uh-huh. So I took astronomy. Right. And then when I applied for graduate schools, I didn't get into the physics graduate school that I wanted to go to, mm-hmm. which was Harvard. But mm-hmm. they, the astronomy department let me in. So right. I went there. Right. So that's really it. I see. Since got then, it. I've been employed as a physicist, never as an astronomer. Right. But um, uh, 123 Infinity was one of the first books that I found that was really tickling the itch of true fundamental physics. Mm. Gamov uh, is you know, one of the pioneers, was one of the pioneers in the field of being an amazingly good professional physicist who also reached out and wrote for a popular audience. Mm. So this was a challenging but readable book for mm-hmm. a 10-year-old uh, who was interested in all sorts of things. And it was an interesting book because there was physics in there. He talked about you know quantum mechanics and elementary particles and nuclei. But there was also mathematics. He talked about set theory and different notions of infinity and topology. And there's also biology. He talked mm. about DNA and genetics and things like that because that's just the kind of mind that he had Mm. and that's what i sort of like i don't know if i quite explicitly articulated this at the time but that's what i wanted to do that's Mm. what i wanted to be i wanted to be someone who could talk about all these different things connect them together see how they all fit together so both the individual things he was talking about and the bigger way that he connected them i thought was just fascinating Mm. he sounds like um renaissance man in that way he was a little bit of a renaissance man he also drew the illustrations for the book and um he was, you know, he I, later I learned he was a fascinating character. You know, he never uh, got a great job at one of the best universities because he was a little too idiosyncratic and a bit of a troublemaker. And um, he was a practical joker. And, you know, he, his papers and so forth had jokes in them. And but he really helped invent what we now call the Big Bang model. The really? idea that not only at, at, the idea that you know the universe started with a hot, dense state and then expanded and cooled, other people had invented that, but he and his students really figured out what it meant in terms of uh, the early universe was a nuclear reactor, and he showed how that worked. And the early universe left behind radiation that we now observe as the cosmic background radiation mm-hmm. that is one of the most studied things in modern astrophysics. And it was really you know he did that, and it was a little underappreciated at the time. So fascinating. So he both pioneered a, uh, that as well as making, as well as writing a book right. that was rendering yes. it interesting. And, That's and, right. And, and he wrote a lot of books, actually. Uh, I didn't, again, know that at the time, but he had a whole series called Mr. Tompkins, where uh, he sort of imagined that the speed of light was very slow so that you could run at the speed of light. And what would the world be like if that were hmm. true? Or what if the world were like if we were the size of atoms mm-hmm. and things like that? So he was really very interested in explaining these wonderful ideas to a broad audience. How fascinating. And you came to that. That's one of the ones you found in the in the stacks on yeah. your own. Yeah. Do you, did you take it to anyone? Did you take it to a teacher? Did you did you take it to a No, I never did talked it... to anybody else about anything. Really? <laughs> I just read it. Really? And yeah, I, I bought my own copy and I read it. And uh, 
I'm not sure if I have it. I should make sure that I at least have a copy lying around yeah. somewhere. But um, yeah, you know, I had a, I guess I had one friend in elementary school who was also interested in science, but then he moved away, as, as people do in elementary mm-hmm. school. And I had teachers who were supportive, but they didn't know what the word astrophysicist meant, right? You know, they're high school teachers or right. junior high school teachers. Right. How lonely. No, to have a, to have this passion that's okay. that you don't no, get to I'm share. A, I'm or an introvert. It... That's okay. I right. would just soon be left alone. Right, and, uh, I see. You know, that was, that was fine with me. It never bothered me. Yeah, and did you did it widen the lens from that? Did that then make you go, I need to read more about this world? Was it I need to narrow in on this? Because right. it so sounds the... like the white, the width, the breadth of what he was talking about was part of the appeal. Yeah, it absolutely was. Um, part of the fact that I never really talked to other people or got good guidance about these things was that I didn't really have a good plan for progressing along the way. Like, right. I didn't even know when I was 10 years old, I said, I wanted to be a theoretical physicist. Sure. I didn't know that that meant you became a university professor. Right. right. I didn't know there was such a thing as graduate school or PhDs or sure. any of those things. Sure, I just sort of said, there's clearly people doing this. I would like to be one of I those people. I want to be doing that. Fascinating. And yeah. so I never knew, like, what I should do to go along the way mm-hmm. or, you know, make good choices about where to go to school or anything mm-hmm. like that. So at every step, I probably made suboptimal choices, and I'm just glad that I've made it this far. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't look like you made suboptimal. We're sitting here in yeah, Caltech yeah. in your office. I'm not sure that they could have been that suboptimal. When um, when do you think you last read the book? Uh, it's been a while. Now, I mean, you're making me think that I need to make sure that I still have my copy, or if I don't, then I need to get a new copy. Because that, that's, that book is a classic. Yeah. Like, there's other books I also read and remember. There was one called High Energy Physics, just mm-hmm. a boring title. Um, and in fact, I, I doubt you'd be able to find it mm-hmm. uh, unless and maybe some used bookseller on Amazon mm-hmm. would sell it. But uh, it was full, and it wasn't written by a famous physicist. That was not genius writing, but it was just... Like, hot off the presses, here's all the new discoveries we've made in particle physics. Mm. Like, all the new stuff we've discovered um, at all these new facilities and experiments. And we're still discovering more. And, you know, how is it all going to fit together? Mm-hmm. And that was just very, very exciting. Mm-hmm. Sure. I'm wondering when you um, – did you did it become – I mean, what was the end game at, at 10 then? It was just to become a physicist and get to swim around in this world? Yeah, to learn all the physics I could. Yeah, really? that was the end game, right? To find, <laughs> to find all the physics you could. See, that's yeah, so game... interesting. That's such a, that, Because that's a fairly unique, um, acquisitive mindset. Right. So, so um, there's always a little bit of a, a danger or a tension among people who fall in love with science, which is you can... It would be great if you got paid to do nothing but learn and understand the science that other people had already discovered. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Nobody is paid to do uh, that, right? Interesting, right. Um, you're paid to discover new stuff yourself. That's right. the job. Right. And so uh, some people sort of never make that transition, right? Because uh-huh. what you're trained to do is learn things that other people have discovered sure. and then do problem sets and mm-hmm. final exams and so forth. Mm-hmm. But then what you're expected to do is something very different, right? Sure. And, you know, fortunately for me, yeah, I, I, I had this dream of not only sort of learning physics, but then it was clear that there are certain questions we don't know the answer to. Mm-hmm. What happened at the Big Bang? How are the laws of physics unified? How do they mm-hmm. get along? Uh, how do gravity and quantum mechanics, our two best theories, how do they fit together? Mm-hmm. Like, there were, it was clear that there were these unanswered questions. Mm-hmm. So I would, I was, my vague goal was, yeah, I'd like to answer some of these questions. To unify that. That's fascinating. The next book on your list is um, Lord of Light. Roger Zelazny, am I pronouncing that right? Um, 1967. I was looking this book up, and I've looked, oh, I looked all your books up, obviously. But um, I was struck by the fact that the first um, thing that came up was, of course, about Game of Thrones, because there's a Lord of Light in Game of Thrones. Yes, you're a Game of Thrones fan. (laughs) I am. And I had to sort of wade through pages of real. Riano, Riano, oh, I forget his name, but anyway. Lore, yeah, yeah right, exactly. Yeah. That's too bad. So. Uh, and, uh, no, not at all. It was just interesting, and then I and then I um, came on your book. What um, what took you to this book? How old were you when you read this? This is probably high school, maybe junior high school. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to pick a book that reflected the fact that I really did read a lot of science fiction mm-hmm. when I was uh, growing up as a, as a child. Parallel uh, with the physics. Uh, yes, that's right. right. And in fact, I don't think that one inspired the other. To be perfectly honest, really, I think I, think I liked so both of them. Right. Okay. Um, I mean, I liked. Uh, 
the kind of science fiction that was very heavily science-based, but I also liked the kind that was not. Like, mm-hmm. this is not, right? Sure. Um, Zelazny was uh, someone who was one of these wonderful writers, stylists. His mm. prose is very compelling. Um, he was also brilliantly creative in terms of ideas. He was not always disciplined, mm. right? So uh, his short stories are amazing. Once he got to novels, he would sort of sometimes lose focus and it sure. wouldn't, you know, the beginning is not as good as the end or vice versa. But Lord of Light was, I think, the, the sort of um, novel that he wrote which clicked the best. Like, it's a wonderful story, wonderful characters, fully realized from start to finish. And the basic idea is... Um, some time ago, hundreds of years ago, uh, people from Earth set a spaceship with many, many people on board to colonize a planet around a star far away. The book was written in the 60s, so Space Race was mm, on. 67, so yeah. So, uh, you know, send these people to colonize another planet, and they, they land on the planet, and then it's hundreds of years after that. So mm. this is new uh, civilization. And basically what has happened is the original passengers have kept all the technology for themselves. And their descendants and so forth live in relative poverty. Mm -hmm. And the original passengers basically found the secret to immortality and set themselves up as gods. And one of the little twists, which I thought was, you know, was fascinating at the time, was it wasn't the United States who sent the ship or uh-huh. Europe or China. It was mm-hmm. India. Mm. So they set themselves up as the Hindu gods. Great. So there's Brahma and Shiva and uh-huh. so forth, right? And uh, there's this one guy, the, our protagonist, who is the sort of, um, he, the, the Democrat, if you like. He mm-hmm. wants to, to give the technology to everybody. And uh, so there's a, a long sequence in the book where he sets himself up as the Buddha mm-hmm. and uh, sort of sets this countervailing tradition going that people get interested in. And so it was this just wonderful mix of fun characters, uh, weird uh, alien technology. There's you know, alien life forms that are very different and, uh, and a little sociopolitical message at the same time. Sure. It was very well done. That seems to me the fun of, of science fiction. I, I am um, a wide reader, but sci- science fiction is, is something that I've... Had a narrower experience of. That's not to say I don't love and deeply appreciate it when I when I stumble across a great one. And it seems to me that one of the appeals of it is the ability to not just, um, you know, unlike in a novel where where the the presence of the real quote unquote real world allows the novelist to maybe explore psychological truths since the background backdrop is a given. The the invent the choice to invent an entire universe means that there's the opportunity for social commentary in a way that I think conventional fiction or not conventional fiction, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, that's right. Non-science fiction doesn't necessarily allow for or allows for, but it has to be, it's probably more heavy handed. Weirdly, once you choose to make an entire parallel universe, you can be as deft as you like, assuming you are an artist. It's a new way to look at how human beings would respond to different circumstances, right? Right. Um, You can make things up. You can Mm -hmm. make up whole societies. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, the real genius of that uh, was and is Ursula Le Guin, if you've Mm. ever read her stuff, because she uh, started also in the 60s and, and has written these wonderful books where she imagines different things like what if um, there's a kind of human being, but they change their gender every so often, right? Mm. Or, you know, um, societies that uh, love learning versus societies that don't like learning at all. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you just all these thought experiments, mm-hmm. really, from the sure. physicist's point of view. And that's what science fiction is very good at. Yeah, yes. I think the fluidity of that is really is really when fascinating. It's well done. When right. it's well That's done, right. exactly. Yeah. And it was interesting, when I was looking up um, Zelazny, I found this quote that I loved, and it really speaks to what you were saying. I, I forget who said it, but um, he said, reading Zelazny is like dropping into a Mozart string quartet as played by Thelonious Monk. <laughs> yeah. Which um, <laughs> you, you could speak to more the accuracy of, but when you were saying about his ability to sort of lose focus sometimes, it would... It, it, well, it correlates with a great. It's jazz a very jazzy artist. thing, right? Exactly, yeah, like yeah. when the jazz uh, artists are at their best, and you get those transcendent moments of creativity that are irreproducible at right. any other time. But when they're just noodling along, sometimes you can get a little you know, lost. Yeah, you, you feel know, like, like where's the melody? Exactly, okay. and corral this. <laughs> let's bring it back in. Um, it was actually it also it what I was reading about it and what you were just speaking about made me think of um, one of I think the greatest science fiction works I've ever read, which is The Sparrow. Um, do you, okay. know, do you know, know that, that one? one. Oh. No. So it's uh, Mary Daria Russell, and it's sort of, I think, universally acknowledged as one of one of the great, great ones. And and similarly, is about a mission that's sent to space, and it deals with. I, I think it, I think you would um, 
I think you personally would really be interested in it and buy it because it is a philosophical uh-huh. um, and religious, truly religious. It's a priest who gets sent out mm-hmm. on this pre- on this mission, and it is the priest who makes first contact and brings his deeply Jesuit um, yeah. approach to yeah. to the life force that he's meeting. It's it's so profoundly shocking the book and the reveal of it is to the marrow of my but to this day i mean i read it six years ago and i can remember it vividly um he's taken prisoner and when you discover what's happened to him it is uh, you can't believe it you you just can't believe this (laughs) you can't believe someone's written this um and it's but it it I, I was thinking about it because of what you were saying about, you know, this the the choice to bring um, Hindu gods into right. uh, an alien world. And it seems to me that when, when science fiction is at its best, or it, maybe it's just the coincidence of these two books, it's when they are willing to examine the, the possibility or the coexistence. How do we reconcile a, a deity or the human deep, deep need for a deity in this in this other in this other universe possibly with a life form that does not need or recognize a deity yeah. but that invariably still hungers for a hierarchy like there's a lot there's... Uh, there's a lot of that yeah i think it's a, it's a very rich vein to mine right. because like we said science fiction at its best puts human beings in different sets of circumstances mm-hmm. that are hard to imagine here on earth and uh, yeah a lot of the issues you're going to run into are the these bigger picture issues about right. where we fit right. into the universe what is our place right which is something that you address in all your work that's right. as far yes, as I could exactly. tell preposterous that's universe right. seemed to me like oh not all of it so that's, that's inaccurate but but there seemed to me a, a large branch of what you have dedicated your yeah so I think you know science fiction can get ghettoized at times in the sense yeah, that sure. like it's treated less lesser yes. Um, but there's a continuum, right? And of there's course, highly literary as there is with anything. Fiction. Yeah. And you know, when you when you mention the sparrow, the you know the first thing that comes to mind is something like the plague, Camus. Mm-hmm. Right? Sure. Uh, sure. It's not science fiction, mm-hmm. but it easily could be, yeah. right? Like he set up a, a situation. You could easily do that in, sure. a, in a different kind of thing. And and. Uh, Hopefully, TV and movies are doing more of that now. Mm-hmm. There, uh, you know, there's uh, some very imaginative things out there. So, taking advantage of the science fiction set of possibilities to do more than just shoot at people with lasers mm-hmm. uh, is something that I think there's still a lot of room for people to do. Yeah. Do you still read science fiction now? I do. I've sort of actually gotten back into it uh-huh. uh, in the last few years. Um, you know, I don't read that much science outside my pop- my, my professional interest. Like, mm-hmm. I read a lot of uh, you know, research papers. Sure. But if I go home and want to relax, I'm not going to read a popular book on physics. That's right. the last thing I'm interested what in. What will right? you? What does relax you? Um, so it's much more often either reading, basically reading novels of mm. one form or another. Um, sometimes I'll read a history book or biography or something like that. But, uh, yeah, and I, and I discovered that I still really like a good science fiction novel. There's a lot of good ones that have come on board since I stopped reading in earnest somewhere around the mid 80s yeah. mm-hmm. do you um, do you and your wife swap books do you recommend for each other sometimes your taste she's, uh, she reads faster than I do so I can't mm-hmm. always keep up um, and you know I'll, I'll take a book and read it uh, I used to think when I was a kid I was a fast reader and mm-hmm. maybe I was but now I'm just so distracted by like things I got to do and stuff like that it takes me a long time to read a good thick book yeah. so I'm happy to get a, a good book that will take me a month to go through before I'm yeah, yeah 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 me too it's a relief too. Um, your next book was Pride and Prejudice, which was such a lovely surprise to see on your list. <laughs> I was so I was so um, thrilled to see it, and uh, thrilled to see one one title that I recognised just selfishly. Um, so that's of course Jane Austen, and was published in eighteen thirteen. Tell me, tell me why that's on the list and when it when it appeared. Yeah, so you. this I discovered when I was in graduate school, mm-hmm. so uh, early twenties basically. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, honestly, is because I was going out and I had a girlfriend uh, uh-huh. who was uh, she was actually in the sociology department. Mm-hmm. I was in graduate school at Harvard in the astronomy department myself. She was in sociology, but she switched into comparative literature, mm-hmm. and. Uh, but she was from Finland, and she the reason why she, she was struggling because despite the fact that she was now a PhD student in comparative literature, she hadn't read a lot of literature. So she was catching <laughs> up on like Melville and Austin and people like that. And uh, she was always talking about Jane Austen, and uh, so I thought I should at least try to read something. Because I always liked reading, you know, different things. Mm-hmm. But uh, honestly, even at that point, you know, I would still 
if I wandered into a bookstore, I was more likely to buy a science fiction book than a classic literature book. Sure. And I read Mansfield Park, mm. which in retrospect is Jane Austen's most boring book, right? I mean, oh, I liked I it, don't know, but, but yeah. it is, you know, yeah. And so I told her that I had read it, and I kind of liked it. And she's like, what are you doing reading that? You have to read Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> so I read that, and I just absolutely loved it. I was laughing all, all the whole time when I was reading it, and I, I ripped through it, and then I read all of her other books. Uh-huh. And, uh, well, while you were still at Harvard, or just yeah, subsequently? Yeah, I, you know, pretty quickly. I read. You know, she didn't write that many books, right? No, like it's five true. Or six novels, so it's not <laughs> that hard um and yeah i thought it was just a wonderful um you know she can write in such a way that it's both ironic and real at the same time mm. you know these characters like you can definitely see these characters doing all of these things and not that much happens in the way of you know explosions and so forth but she gets with amazing accuracy what every single person is thinking at every single moment mm-hmm. of these interactions mm-hmm. and how they slowly change and how they don't quite understand each other mm-hmm. and I just thought, like, okay, this is what, you know, really great literature. I get it, why this is wonderful uh, world-class literature. Hmm, interesting. Was it your first express with real, like, capital L literature, do you think? Not really. There were other ones that I loved. Um, uh, as an undergraduate, you know, as, a, as an undergraduate student at Villanova, uh, we took a lot of classes in humanities and social sciences. Mm-hmm. And so I read a lot of books, and I liked a lot of them. Uh, I really liked Dostoevsky, mm-hmm. uh, William Faulkner, mm-hmm. uh, George Bernard Shaw. Right. And so I thought that I really loved classic literature, but yeah, Jane Austen really just instantly became my favorite. Yeah, <laughs> you see, I see, it just um, it just reminds me, you know, I, I I forget how broad American education at college level still is. You that's know, we, right. well asking, because it's so shallow in high school, we have to catch up <laughs> in university. Yes, that's um, right. Yeah, I guess it does even out then. It feels like we specialize so 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 early. I mean, I right. picked, you know, I was doing my A levels. So age 16, I was still I was down to three subjects. I was doing English, yeah. French and Spanish yeah. and at 16. And that was it. And then my lens got narrower still when I got to Oxford and studied English literature, right. you know, which began at Chaucer and ended at T.S. Eliot. So, but did you ever take a philosophy course? No, nothing. Right. You were not. We're That's not too bad. I mean, ever even before you were uh, 16? No. Okay, so you've never in your life never. gotten to take philosophy. Never. So that's too bad. Never yeah, gotten right. to do any of that, exactly. Yeah. And never gotten to, um, you know, I've, I've, if I'm fractionally more widely read than that remit that Oxford allowed, it is entirely because I studied Indeed. French and Spanish and because I was interested in, right. you know, what was going on and what Zola was writing or, you know, Flaubert or whoever it was. But it was simply not because the course required it. So I always forget, you know, when I... I'm speaking to people who've been to university here that when I asked them, oh, have you, did you keep reading? It's like, yes, because we kept studying. <laughs> we were forced we to. We weren't right. just doing physics yeah. for three years at college. We were doing And this. yeah, so for better and for worse, when I was in high school or junior high school, we read, you know, purportedly great works. But other than Shakespeare, none of them really uh, grabbed me. Hmm. Uh, it was fairly perfunctory. And then, yeah, once I got to university, I discovered a whole world of things. Like yeah. The people I mentioned, but also like the... Kafka, Camus, sort of existential mm. kind of stuff I really, really liked. And and then when I was in graduate school and learning things by myself, I started reading not only some of the classics, uh, Jane Austen, Flaubert, the Brontes, and so forth, but also more modern American literature. Mm-hmm. Who did you like, or who do you like? Well, it's the next book on my list. I oh, tell like, me, right? tell so, me, yeah. Uh, uh, Thomas Pynchon, yes. Gravity's Rainbow. I've never read this book. Uh, Pynchon is an author I've just skipped over. You're, you're right. making me want to go back to him. Good. So, you know, uh, he, he his books are wildly different from each other. Mm-hmm. So don't judge him one way or the other on the basis okay. of one book. Uh, Gravity's, Gravity's Rainbow is Rainbow. 1973, just to That's right. That is his published. classic. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think I probably discovered this either later in graduate school or soon thereafter mm-hmm. when I become a postdoc, as we say. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's, you know, in many ways the opposite of Jane Austen. Jane Austen is, like, easy <laughs> to read. Uh, you love the characters. You feel deeply emotionally about what's happening. It's perfectly clear what is happening. Uh, Pynchon is wildly discursive, very uh, hard to read, mm. to be to be fair. Dense? Um, very, very dense. Right. Uh, as dense as it's possible to be. Mm-hmm. Gravity's Rainbow is his uh, masterpiece that won the National Book Award and... Uh, you know, got him nominated many times for the Nobel Prize, and uh, it's uh, experimental, postmodern. Um, you know, there, there's there's moments when the the in the voice of the uh, narrator, 
he's not sure what happens. He hmm. says, well, maybe this happened, maybe that happened. <laughs> you know? And it's, it's like, well, you should know. You're writing the book, right? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> um, a n- huge number of characters in a huge number of situations, a lot of metaphorical things going on. So, I mean, I think it's, uh, I, I chose it, uh, not for your list, not only because it's one of my favorite books, but because it's a the, the best exemplar of a certain way of writing and like really using the um, opportunities in literature to go wild and really stretch yourself and and uh, the opposite end of the spectrum from telling a fun story. There's fun stories and, and fun moments in the book, mm-hmm. but it's really a mind twister more than anything else. And scientific, right? I mean, isn't, isn't there's it? a lot of science in there? Mm-hmm. Uh, Pynchon was an engineering as well as English major as an really? undergraduate, and then that. he like worked in the Navy or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, so there's, I remember I, I lent it to a friend of mine, and she didn't like it, but she was a chemist, mm-hmm. and, you know, not only is there a lot of chemistry in the book, but it's it's set in World War II and um, different parts of Europe, and she said, like, it's particularly German chemistry. <laughs> like, right. he, he knew it well enough that right. it was the kind of chemistry that would be going on in that place at that time. Right. Um, so, yeah, so that's just part of, I don't think anyone has ever fully absorbed the book. I've read it three times myself. And really? I keep lo- loving reading it again. When did you last reread it? Um, I last reread it maybe like five years ago or something okay. like that. Uh, he later came out with, um, I think it was in the 19... 19- 80s or 90s, he came out with Mason and Dixon, mm-hmm, sure. which is my favorite of his books. Okay, um, It's not quite as critically acclaimed, but it's very highly acclaimed. And that's set in the American, uh, just before the American Revolution, mm-hmm. when uh, these surveyors slash astronomers come to the U.S. to draw the dividing line between the North and South. Mm-hmm. And it's hilariously funny. It's still big and dense, but much more easy to read and sort of full of colorful vignettes. Mm-hmm. But also there's this just wonderful metaphorical pull of um, the the surveyors sort of bringing reality into existence by marching west into the unknown and finding Mm. out what's there. Mm, And you know what it is sort of a good metaphor is for quantum mechanics, (laughs) which is what quantum mechanics differs. You know, quantum mechanics came along in the 1920s, so it's anachronistic in that sense. But one of the things that makes quantum mechanics difficult to understand is that the act of observing something plays a crucial role mm-hmm. in how we think about it, mm-hmm. which if you're Newton, if you invented an ordinary classical physics, observing things, you just look at them and you see what they are. But in quantum mechanics, they aren't what you see until you look at them. Mm-hmm. And so Pynchon uh, has that. I'm not, I'm not sure if it's... I, I suspect personally that it was uh, intentional. Mm-hmm. He sometimes uses language that is... Uh, sort of matching on to what quantum mechanics physicists use when they talk about the act of observation. Oh, really? But uh, he doesn't make a big deal out of it, uh-huh. you know, so you can take it or leave it. Uh-huh. But, you know, he has his surveyors moving to the West, and he, he implies that there's a lot of stories about what they're going to find over this hill, and he implies that before they go, all the stories are true. And then once they go and see something, then one of these realities becomes what is actually there. And Schrodinger's cat. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. And uh, so I, I think that, you know, for the purposes of influential books in my life, Gravity's Rainbow ranks above because I read it first and it sort of opened my eyes to a whole new thing that I would really like. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose to a different generation or different set of people, it would be Ulysses that they right. would read in, right. you know, in the same way. Or not um, read. Or not Lie read, right, read. exactly. I think Ulysses <laughs> is harder to read even than Gravity's yeah. Rainbow is. Um, but then also, you know, Gravity's Rainbow, I read when I was a, a graduate student. And then um, for three years I spent after my PhD at MIT doing research mm-hmm. and then another three years in Santa Barbara. And when I was in Santa Barbara, uh, I, I found this group of physics graduate students who had a reading group that read Gravity's Rainbow. So no, go, just that book? Yeah, just, oh yeah. Read it out loud or just Not out loud, but group, like, you know, 20 week? pages a week. Really? <laughs> we would get together and discuss what's going on. And, you know, t- for two hours, we could discuss those 20 pages. No Fascinating, problem. Fascinating. Really? Yeah. And all of you bringing... Um, physics to it as part of the discourse? That would or? happen, but it wasn't crucially important. Uh-huh. It was really about what was going on in the novel, whatever it was, whether it was, you know, I mean, like, he would talk about the statistics of bombs landing on London during the Blitz and so forth, right. but a lot of time it was, you know, weird sexual things or weird political things. There was a whole discourse on um, the Germans' colonization of South Africa and things like that, uh-huh. so there was always lots to talk about. 
That's so fun. How many years do you do it? If you're only doing 20 pages probably at a time. a couple of years, yeah. And you got through the through whole it. book. Uh, I think we did. So I, I'm remembering, maybe I'm giving myself a, a benefit in no, memory, no, 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 but no. I think we went through the whole book, yeah. That's extraordinary. There, yeah. I can't think of many books that would that would bear that kind of 20-page right. scrutiny. That's what that book is good for. That's yeah, the kind of thing, yeah. yeah. It's funny that you mentioned the sexual oddities because one of the things I was reading when I was reading about the book was that it was nominated for the Pulitzer and was turned down on the basis of being, I wrote the words down, turgid, obscene, and overwritten. Well, overwritten is, you know... That's a judgment call, but exactly. yes. Exactly. <laughs> um, and fascinatingly, no Pulitzer for Fiction was awarded That's that right. year. I mean, they felt like they couldn't, like, this was clearly the best book, but they didn't want to give it to that, so... So, so don't give don't it to give anyone, anyone yeah. which by default means it belongs to to, to that book, That's I think. Right. But um, but I was struck by that. I was like, wow, I want, now I want to read it. Now that it's obscene, I definitely yeah. want to read it. But Pynchon is also um, famously a recluse, mm-hmm. right? He doesn't let his picture get taken. He doesn't do interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, he's still active writing. He's probably, you know, 80 years old now. But he, like, lives in Manhattan and, you know, goes out to Starbucks and whatever. But he just doesn't want his picture taken and this I is I did not know uh, this yeah, so there's a whole mythology of around you know, him and he's done guest spots on The Simpsons because The really? Simpsons is animated you don't need to see his picture but he does He'll a voice lend his voice he lends and voice. he will not lend his yeah, image that's right fascinating yeah and now I'm going to the bottom of the internet to find a photo of him <laughs> I have to come up covered in weeds to find it um, your last book is David a book called, uh, called Time and Chance by David Albert which right. was published in 2000 um which I really enjoyed reading about, just ex- in the obviously superficial skim I did of it. But I, mostly what I loved was just this summation of it as the philosophy of physics. I yeah. loved, um, I, I was really struck by that. Will you uh, unpack that for me? What is the philosophy sure. of physics? So I, what, was, what moved you, rather, about this book? Yeah, I mean, I discovered when I was an undergraduate in college that there was this thing called philosophy that I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. I ended up being a philosophy minor, mm-hmm. um, as well as a physics major, as well as an astronomy major. And um, I took a bunch of classes. And then when I was uh, in graduate school, I also sat in on a bunch of classes with some of the world's most famous philosophers. Mm. And, like but, who? Uh, John Rawls, mm-hmm. Robert Nozick, mm-hmm. and um, what I actually loved was moral and ethical and political philosophy. Mm. That's that's what got me very interested. The idea of sort of creating a system of justice or something like that mm-hmm. that would be fair and, and whatever, and clearly people disagreed with what that would be. And I would take classes on philosophy of science, but they weren't that interesting to me right. because what they were about was how does science work? Right. Like, what does it mean to have a theory? What does it mean to choose between two different options? And, you know, that's interesting and important, but it it, it seemed to pale in my eyes in comparison to doing science. Right. Um, But then but I always kept up that interest. I thought it was the philosophy uh, in general was very interesting. And then sort of in grad school and being a postdoc, you had to specialize and focus in. So I was mostly doing physics and I became a professor in 1999 and um, one of the things I became interested in on, on a research level was the beginning of the universe. Mm. Um, and what it turns out, a lo- very long story made short, this is the, the, also the topic of my first uh, popular book mm-hmm. called From Eternity to Here. Mm-hmm. Um, why is the past different from the future? Right. You remember what happened yesterday, but you don't remember what happened, what will happen tomorrow. Right. It's a very, very obvious difference. Mm -hmm. Turns out this difference between past and future is not there in the laws of physics. The laws of physics don't distinguish between past and future. It's perfectly symmetric. (laughs) So the short answer is that the reason why the past is different from the future is because we started very, very different. At the Big Bang, we had very, very specific, organized conditions, what we call low entropy highly ordered and entropy is the measure of disorderliness and it increases as time goes on so there's this connection between this very down-to-earth thing why can i take cream and coffee and mix them together but not unmix them Mm -hmm. and cosmology and the big bang the origin of the universe what i did for a living Mm -hmm. so you know finally this this thing that had sort of been lurking in my periphery uh for a long time came to the fore something i was interested in doing um academically at a research level and I realized, and I, by studying that, I realized there was a whole thing called philosophy of physics that was different than philosophy of science. I mean, it's a subset in some sense, but it's not about theory choice. It's about physics. It's about, you know, why is the past different from the future? What does happen when you observe a quantum mechanical system? You know, these foundational questions. It's actually, to be perfectly honest, doing physics 
but in a way that physicists don't really respect, and therefore they do it in philosophy department. That's honestly, what it is. And <laughs> that's people really the like, distinction. Yeah, it really is. And people like David Albert, his PhD is in physics, right. not in philosophy. Right. But he he realized early that what he wanted to do was he was going to get a job in a philosophy department. Right. So his book that came out around that time, I met him at a conference and uh, and you know figured out that he had written this book that people were citing as sort of the book to read on this topic, and I read it and I, I really fell in love with it and sort of. That pushed me in this direction that I'm in right now in my own research career of sort of uh, explicitly acknowledging that I like doing foundations of physics mm -hmm. as well as physics itself. So right. that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm quasi-philosophical in some of my own research right now. So that certainly had a big impact on me. Sure. It's interesting because it, it seems like it was a book that gave permission to, if not you, then, then, a, then at least David Albert himself, to, to discourse or to use a different discourse to talk about the same problems or yeah issues, i think so right? i mean to, it's a it's talk. a i mean it, it it it's the kind of thing where you say um you can always ask why questions mm -hmm. right so you say well here's what happened and they say well why did it happen that way mm -hmm. and depending on which why question you're asking the average physicist on the street might say well here's why or we don't know why yet but we'll try to find out or don't ask that question. We don't care about that. It just is like that. Just be quiet, okay? Right. And the philosopher will push one level more and really try to get things down. Or um, at the same, another thing that can happen is that physicists will make some assumptions. Let's just say that this is true or this is true, mm -hmm. and the philosopher will say, "Well, how do you know these things are true? Right, let's you know right, dig right. into this." So let's question the very don't, premise. Yeah, of the, exactly. Right. Don't just cheat yourself into the answer. Let's let's do the work. Right. And uh, and I think that it 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 directly impacts the work that is going on now in modern physics and cosmology. It's not just mm. dotting I's and crossing T's and asking uh, some uh, questions we can answer by sitting around in our smoking jackets and thinking hard, mm -hmm. uh, but questions like, you know, where did structure in the universe come from, right? Mm -hmm. Like, why are there planets and galaxies? Why isn't the universe perfectly smooth? Mm -hmm. Why does the universe have matter in it? Why isn't it empty, right? Mm -hmm. These directly relate to some of these foundational philosophy of physics questions mm -hmm. that people have been thinking about. So mm -hmm. I'm actually like trying to, you know, have my own little secret campaign mm -hmm. to get physicists and cosmologists to recognize the importance of these foundational issues. Yeah, it's fascinating because you ask those questions and those to me seem indistinguishable from each other. I'm like, well, yeah, where, where would right. you draw the line between the, why isn't that a physics question and why isn't that a philosophy question? It's How, a weird thing. Yeah. It's a, you know, and it's a, there's a lot of... Um, you know, physics makes progress in large part by picking what to pay attention to and what to ignore, right? Right. Like, quantum mechanics is the best example. Quantum mechanics is this weird thing. It's this theory that we put together in the 1920s. Einstein never really liked it, right? Like he went to his grave not really quite accepting quantum mechanics. And quantum mechanics says that uh, if you have a particle, let's say a single particle, an electron, and it's spinning. Mm -hmm. And it could be spinning clockwise or counterclockwise. And quantum mechanics says, actually, typically the electron is in a superposition of spinning clockwise and spinning counterclockwise. But when you look at it, you will never see it in a superposition. You will only ever see it spinning clockwise or counterclockwise. And this just makes people's head explode, yeah, right? Mine, and mine's just it, all over exactly. the floor it's right just, very, just right. picking pieces up off the floor Which is, right so, But that's fine. So you would think then that the reaction of the physics community, you know, this is since 1927 we've sure. been thinking about this, 90 years. And uh, you would think that we would say, like, this is a deep question. This is the most important thing. Let's figure out what is going on here. Mm -hmm. But instead, they've done the opposite. They've gone into total denial mode. They've said, well, we have some equations. Those equations work. Let's not worry too much. And it is called the shut up and calculate approach <laughs> to these deep questions. And uh, it does take you, you know, if you want to build a, a device or a transistor or atomic bomb mm -hmm. or a computer, that's fine. You don't need to know the answer to these foundational questions. But if you want to know where the universe came from or how the ultimate laws of physics work, then you kind of do need to know the answer to these questions. And so I think that... Uh, Hopefully, people are finally uh, beginning to catch on to the importance of this work. Mm. It's interesting. I'm wondering if, and maybe this is just simply speaks to my personal bias, but I'm wondering if a love of literature and a, and a, and a love of words and a love of um, holding up the world to investigation by means other than the ones that might be empirically observed, I'm wondering if that 
informs or encourages a philosophical approach to science. I'm wondering. If I think so, or at least I think that they're correlated. You know, sure. the, the kind of person uh, who has the inclination to take these foundational philosophical issues more seriously mm -hmm. might tend to be the kind of person who is more in love with literature, you know, for its own sake, right. than yeah. just playing around with the equations. Yeah, yeah it sounds. It right. sounds like that there might be a, a relationship there, or at least a sort of a wider lens, you know, of, uh, that, yeah, that embraces the right. humanities. And as well you as know. It's a good thing that not every physicist is like that. You know, okay. most physicists kind of sit in their office and do their work or <laughs> stay in their labs, and right? right. And that's as it should be. But you need some people mm. who want to bring this broader context to it. Otherwise, you become narrow and you sort of stay in your rut. And sure. You, you, know, you run the danger of just uh, never seeing the forest for the trees. Yeah. So fun to talk about. Thank you. Will you um, indulge me with some of my little follow-up questions? Okay, sure. Thank you. They're short and sweet. Um, uh, what was the last book, if there was one, that made you cry? Made me cry. If you are a crier in books, you may not be. Um, I'm a bigger crier in movies and TV shows. Uh -huh. I'm pretty big, actually. But books, hmm. Um, Come back to it if you need to. I'm not sure. So I guess I'll cheat because I don't really think I cried. But I recently read Night Film by Marisha Pessel. No, I don't know. Uh, she is a modern young author, mm -hmm. um, American author. Actually, I met her in person. That's why I started reading her uh -huh. books. Uh, her first book, she's only written two novels. The first one was called Special Topics in Calamity Physics. Oh, yes. So... Yes. I, that's I, a natural one for me to read. I do know that book. Yes. I, I even read it. I can picture it on my bookshelf. Yeah. Yes. I like that book a lot. But then Night Film, her second book, I love. Oh, I just was great. head over heels. And it didn't get uh, quite the critical acclaim that um, Special Topics did, which I think means that the critics have no idea what they're talking about. But, uh, well, there's nothing new there. I'm going to write it down. Night yes, Film. That sounds uh, great. Night Film. And it's this story about an investigative journalist, a disgraced investigative journalist. Uh, he became disgraced because he started uh, investigating a, a reclusive film director, mm -hmm. horror film director, mm -hmm. some combination of uh, Stanley Kubrick and, and, and uh, Scorsese and, and some horror film director. And uh, he, got in, he got in trouble and was disgraced. But now he's sort of back on the track because the director's daughter died and that has reopened the case. And so the, it's a wonderful mix of like characters and glimpses of this director's films and uh, uh, bad things happen and good things happen. And I won't say what happens, Great. but I'm I loved it. it and it's... it would make a perfect one season HBO or Netflix Great. TV Love series. Great. Wonderful. Done. Don't tell anybody else. I'm reading it now. Right. Um, what's the book you are most ashamed of loving? Ah, most ashamed of loving. Um, yeah. Are you someone that feels guilty about do you have guilty pleasures when it comes to reading? When it comes to reading, I don't know. I mean, I love reading comic books and graphic novels. Still, I don't know yeah. whether I should be ashamed of that. No, or not, I don't think. But uh, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure even why I have this question. I think it's yeah. because some people have shame around books. I don't. I believe every I don't really book has feel a merit. Ashamed, yeah, right. pretty much. Um, some when I was in grad school, I did fall in uh, in a crowd that had several English majors, mm -hmm. and they introduced me to something called the romance novel game. Mm -hmm. so there's a game you play when there's five or six of you sitting around after dinner. You pick, like, the steamiest, most tawdry romance novel mm -hmm. that you have mm -hmm. close to hand. And someone picks out one sentence, and they, they tell everyone one word from that sentence. Uh -huh. And everyone else writes a sentence of their own using that word. Yeah. And you guess which one was in the book and which one you could write. And there's nothing nothing uh, highbrow about these books that the no, romance novel game is based so on. that's so fun. That's, the, that's a much more salacious and interesting version of the one I do, which is the game we've always played, which is you write the first sentence. I read you the ah. blurb on the back of the book, and then you right. write the first sentence. We all put, you know. Yeah, that's much more respectable. Yeah, than no, our. that one's much more fun. <laughs> Ours I'm is saying, much more purple, I'm yeah. saying that one. Um, what's the last book you threw across the room, either figuratively or not? Oh, yeah. I, I finally have matured to the point where I will start a book and not finish it. Uh -huh. like, I used to just think like I was guilty if no, I didn't. No, me too. Um, yeah. uh, there have been a few science fiction books. Like um, Terry Pratchett is an author mm -hmm. who is extremely popular. And I just no interest uh, in star reading and, and finished. Gene Wolfe is another one. Mm -hmm. like, everyone tells me I should read him and I can't Goya's, do it. Goya loves him. Yeah. Really? Yeah, I know. People, people who I respect yeah. love him and I'm like, eh, nope, just not doing it. Oh, how funny. Um, yeah. uh, Jennifer, my wife, loves Connie Willis, who's another science fiction no, fantasy no, no. author. Mm -hmm. She wrote a, um, a 
highly acclaimed time travel book called the Doomsday Book, mm-hmm. and I just and it's set in Oxford, mm-hmm. and I just couldn't, couldn't do it. Just couldn't do it. It's so <laughs> boring. Sorry. Um, who do you take your book recommendations from, or where? I try to take them pretty widely. Um, most of the time, when Jennifer, my wife, mm-hmm. recommends me a book, she's very good, so I'm very happy. I get that. Um, very happy. You know, I use the internet, right? right? Like, if I like these books, what else is it recommending mm-hmm. to me? Um, and I try not to fall into ruts. Like, I try, like, Amazon, if you read a book by one author, it will cleverly recommend you read other books Another by the same 12, author. So who exactly, cares? Like, yeah, yeah, that's not, it didn't take yeah. that. Um, so, yeah, I'll just take them widely and, and try to surprise myself. Yeah. Then, yeah. Um, poetry? Yes, no, indifferent? Um, again, I like poetry and don't read as much as I should. Um, uh, it's a certain amount of discipline to get, in, sure. to get into po- and, and read it uh, uh, assiduously. Um E.E. E. Cummings, W.B. Yeats. Um, uh, I really love Shakespeare. Can write anything he wants. <laughs> but you know, when I read, actually, I recently read Lord of the Rings for the first time. Did you? I never read it. All right? the all three? Yeah, all three. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And I could not go through the poems. I just skipped the poems. Yeah, no, I, like, I oh my couldn't God, agree more. Did you enjoy me? it? Was it what you wanted it to be? Uh, yeah, like except for the very blatant racism. I yes. thought that uh, otherwise it was great, and it was it really was great. Um, the racism was annoying, and the other thing that was annoying that. Like if there was a gigantic battle scene, mm-hmm. it'd be over in three pages. Mm-hmm. But if they're walking through the woods, there's 25 <laughs> in pages. There <laughs> you know, like this leaf was just, like, oh my god! It's so true. It's so true. He, yeah, he stretched it out. He really did. Had you seen that? You'd seen the movies. I've seen the movies. Yeah, and I grew up with it, sort of in the air. Yes, right. Of I played Dungeons and Dragons yeah. when I was a kid, but I just had never read the book. So yeah. I figured it was my duty to read the book. It yeah. was time. I don't know if I ever have. I've read The Hobbit a million times, but mm. I think I felt that I. I dealt with Lord of the Rings. Like, if you've read The Hobbit yeah. enough, I feel like you've read Lord of the Rings. I'm not sure that's right. accurate, but anyway. I think it's still worth reading, but yeah, it's, it's maybe a little dated. Yeah. Um, what do you wish you read more of and less of? I wish I read more history. Mm-hmm. I like history, but you need to like find the right book, like, a, like something that is both um, really fascinating and a good narrative. Is there a period in particular that you would want to read more of? I or think not. Country? I think like I, in terms of, you know, since the question is what should I read more of, I should read more of every part of the world. No, what do you wish, not should? What, uh, what would do you I like wish? to? Yes. Yeah, you know, like when I do read a little bit about Chinese history mm-hmm. or African history mm-hmm. or whatever. It can be fascinating mm-hmm. stuff. Um, Pre-Columbian American history mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, uh, 19th century European history. Like, there's so many things. Mm-hmm. The Roman Empire. Like, I love them all. They're all interesting. I should read much, much more than I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wish I had time to do that. Um, what's uh, the book you expected to like but didn't? Um, yeah, probably the Doomsday Book that I already mentioned. Right. It's like a time travel book by a wonderful, uh, highly acclaimed science fiction writer. Um, the book your wife loved. And yeah, book my wife loved. And, you know, they get great reviews overall. And, and, and I'm, I like time travel. Uh-huh. And it was like scientifically consistent kind of time travel. Uh-huh. And it was like set at Oxford, you know, uh-huh. the academic environment. And just didn't work. Uh, just didn't work. Like the poor woman went back in time and got sick and sat there sick for two thirds of the book and I just couldn't read it sounds like a drag it sounds yeah. just like a drag what's um, the book you liked that you thought you'd hate um there was a book that I actually loved um that I picked up randomly I think you know when I was a graduate student number one I was at Harvard and number two was in the 1990s so there were still bookstores you could just wander mm-hmm. around in. and I was a student so wandering around bookstores I just so that was sort of the time of my life when I read most eclectically mm-hmm. and uh there's this book I think it was called the book of revelation mm-hmm. um I have no idea why it was called that it has nothing to do with the bible or anything like mm-hmm. that it was a short novel about um a man who is kidnapped held and raped by a group of women Hmm. and like the first half of the book is that happening the second half of the book is sort of him trying to deal with it Uh and uh Thank goodness I didn't really know that that was what the book was about because that doesn't sound very appealing sure, at all. Sure. But it was an amazing book. It was short and you know and readable and uh, stayed with you. And apparently. yeah, I have trouble recommending it to people because I tell them what it's about and they're like, yeah, I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and so maybe yeah, just the fact that I read it without knowing too much was the right thing yeah, to do. That's yeah, that's interesting. Um, 
What is the book that you know makes you look good when you recommend it? This is your surefire, this will get you laid if you're reading it at a book. Uh, you know, I remember um, there was a, a column years ago by Russell Baker, who used to be a columnist for the New York Times. Okay. And he said, uh, it was his summer reading advice column, <laughs> this, the, this particular one. And he said, you know, everyone says summer beach reading, you should pick like some fun little mystery or whatever. That is not my advice. He says, that's a dumb thing to do. What you should do is read like the biggest, thickest, most impressive book that you can find with the idea that when you go and sitting and reading it on the beach, <laughs> uh, it will impress the people walking by and you will. Uh, and he says, by the way, you will not actually impress anybody, but you'll read some really good books. <laughs> so, that's great. I think that's the right attitude to have I towards agree. reading impressive sounding books. I um, agree. Uh, yeah, you know, um, most of the books I read right now are on my uh, iPad, so right. it doesn't impress anyone if it's they don't true. see what I'm reading. It's they so can't, true. Even, can't even look at the covers of my books. I, I but if I pull out physics books or physics papers, they're impressed. So yes, that's, they that's are. not. Or intimidated, more likely to be intimidated. Both. So, I mean, um, it comes to the same thing, I think. Yeah. Um, you get to take one book to your desert island. What is it? Um. It would probably be Pride and Prejudice, to be okay. honest. Mm. Um, I mean, unless, do I get to pick, like, the Columbia Encyclopedia or something like that? Sure. That's cheating. Okay. Then I'll take, like, the Columbia Encyclopedia, which is, okay. like, this big one-volume mini encyclopedia that before the internet existed, mm -hmm. uh, I would just read about everything. That's where you would read, like, all these wonderful little things about here's 500 words on the history of Burma or whatever, mm -hmm. right? And uh, I'm, I'm a very encyclopedia-friendly guy, mm -hmm. like short, bite-sized things mm -hmm. that then mention something else that you can look at on page 317 uh, that you wouldn't otherwise have found. Uh, yeah, I could sit in front of that for hours. Does it come with a magnifying glass? It's big enough that you can read it. You like it was, it. it was okay. a big book. It's like bigger than any of these. It's like this uh -huh. big and uh, a big heavy book, but just one volume. So mm -hmm. I think that counts. Um, I pick Pride and Prejudice because you know I, if I'm stuck on a desert island, I want to be cheered up. I want yeah. something where there's a happy ending Some and delight. it's funny and witty writing and yeah. good words. Uh, so if I want something fiction, it would be something like that. Okay, yeah. fantastic, Sean. Thank you so so much. This was such a pleasure. Thank sure. you for giving me your time. My pleasure. This was good. It's a good change of pace for me good. too. Good. I'm so glad. <laughs> That was Sean Carroll, and you've been listening to Bookish. If you like the show, subscribe, tell a friend, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, share the interviews on social media, send someone an email to tell them you liked it, send them a snow globe for no apparent reason whatsoever, but just remember to tell them that you like the show. All the music is created and performed by my multi-talented husband, Davey Holmes, and the show is produced by the excellent Joe Batanz. Join me next week for my interview with my friend and deeply talented ex-co-star from The Catch, Murray Enos. 